0: We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello, I'm Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre and this is the Watercooler Conversation coming to you from the Engine Room of Ideas here in Sydney. In this edition, I want to focus on the tragedy of the botched withdrawal from Kabul by U.S. forces, what it means for that country, its people, our security, the standing of the U.S., and not forgetting what it means for those people with a great deal invested in the outcome in Afghanistan, the men and women who served there either in uniform or as civilians. Dave Sharma is one of the most objective and intelligent observers on these matters that I have the good fortune to know. I first got to know him as the Australian Ambassador to Israel, a position he assumed in 2014 at the frighteningly young age of 37. He left the diplomatic service to stand for the federal seat of Wentworth after the retirement of former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Winning the confidence of voters was not as easy as it should have been and not as easy as I thought it would have been. But nonetheless, I was personally delighted when he got there at his second attempt at the 2019 election, which just goes to prove what I've always thought about this guy. The more you get to know him, the more you like him. Dave Sharma, thank you for joining Watercooler. So, Dave, I've been particularly looking forward to our discussion today as an opportunity to talk about something other than the war on COVID. But uh, regrettably, of course, we must focus on a much, much far more serious military war, the war in Afghanistan, and the um, images that we've seen this week and what they symbolise. First of all, with your foreign affairs hat on, your, your experience as a diplomat uh, in that sphere, how do you see this week's events in context of a 20-year war?
1: Look, I think this week's events have been an unmitigated tragedy and a fiasco and a disaster for anyone that cares about United States standing and credibility and the strength and cohesion of the Western alliance system. Um, I don't think there's much in the way of sugarcoating that you can do. The the, the pictures and the imagery themselves are very damaging. The chaotic scenes at Kabul airport and desperate Afghan civilians clinging to the undercarriages of departing C-17s and C-130s and falling to their deaths. Um, But there's sort of ignominy and dead of night nature of the departure of US forces. They left Bagram, of course, without telling their Afghan local partners. Um, President Biden, in fact, accelerated the withdrawal timetable that President Trump had agreed. And there was no effort made whatsoever to hold the Taliban to the commitments, limited though they were, that they had made as part of this withdrawal arrangement. So I think it's it sends a really damaging signal about the strength of US security assurances to other allies around the world, their, their willingness to, to stay and fight and shore up local partners. Uh, and it will have a sobering effect upon all those, and this includes Australia, all those countries that depend upon or rely upon U.S. security guarantees, security assistance for their own national survival. Uh, Already in Taiwan this week, I mean, unsurprisingly, this has been a matter of very live public Mm -hmm. debate amongst uh, Taiwanese commentators and think tanks and governments because they've seen the United States turn on a dime. We're talking about a commitment that was two decades long, $2 trillion spent, over 2,000 American lives lost. Um, And the Americans have just sort of turned on a diamond and left. Uh, and uh, the thing I find most frustrating here, no one was asking the United States to send in another 100,000 troops. No one was asking them to um, shed a lot more blood or spend a lot more treasure. We'd reached the point where the US presence there, the NATO presence there, was sustainable. Sustainable financially, sustainable um, diplomatically and politically, and sustainable uh, in terms of a sort of a, a commitment of service people. You know the. the the presence there was about one-fifth of what they've got in Korea. No U.S. servicemen had died now or been killed, rather, in over 20 months. But the mere fact of the U.S. presence, as it does many places around the world, stiffened the spine and shored up the Afghan National Forces and acted as a deterrent to not only the Taliban, but any number of other outside actors Outside actors that are now going to exploit this vacuum.
0: Dave Kabul. 2021, Saigon, 1975. It's an inevitable comparison. I want to come back to that. But very first, I think high up in this conversation, I think we should talk about the Australians who served in Afghanistan uh, and uh, many of whom will be feeling, I guess, very flat at the very least right now that everything they put in to that country, including putting their lives at risk, many of them one of your colleagues, known to both of us, um, suffered some terrible injuries there from which thankfully he's recovered to represent the seat of Herbert in Queensland. But, you know, my, my, my thoughts immediately went out to, to guys like that um, and what we can do because, you know, as, as you and I recall, the impact on Viet- veterans who'd served in Vietnam of that uh, rather ignominious withdrawal in 1975 and everything that had preceded it was profound uh, uh, and the, the fact that they they felt that they'd fought a war that was desperately unpopular and they were they were persona non grata. I mean, you know now you go around country towns and you'll spot the Vietnam veteran in the pub very often at 11 o'clock in the morning. What can we do or what should we be doing to reach out to um, our veterans to, to tell them that uh, they've honored their country in a great way? It's a very
1: important, point you make Nick and I think it's exceptionally important now that um, more than ever that we recognise and honour the service of people who've um, uh, given their lives or their friends lives or their mental health or some of their own physical capabilities um, to Afghanistan and and left something of themselves there. We've lost, you know, 41 Australians um, gave their lives during that conflict Um, and I'd also, it's important here that we acknowledge that Certainly the Defence Force personnel and men and women in uniform, but there are also large numbers of diplomats uh, and aid personnel um, who formed uh, the, our footprint there. I mean, so many of my colleagues from my former life, Nick, as a diplomat in foreign affairs have made their careers in Afghanistan, did a couple of tours in Afghanistan. So many of our current generation of men and women in uniform have made their careers in Afghanistan and done tours in Afghanistan. And they all feel quite rightly that they've given of themselves, not only in a professional sense, but a personal sense to um, support this country uh, and um, nurture this country. And rightly now they look back and and they think, well, what what was that all for? What was it all about? Because 20 years later, the Taliban is back in control. uh, It's better armed and it's in control of more territory than it was in 2001. I think all we can do, and there's no sugarcoating that, I think all we can do is say to all those people, we did everything that uh, you did everything that we asked of you you acquitted yourself with honor and distinction uh, and the fact that this has turned out in the way that it has is nothing to do with your own will to fight or um, desire to succeed it's factors beyond your control and I think it's important that we don't um treat this conflict and I don't think we will but in the same way that Vietnam became um seen in the in the sort of the rear view lens of history as a as a failed campaign and a, not a particularly glorious one, I think uh, Afghanistan. We were on the right side of history there. I, you know, it's arguable we were in Vietnam too, but in Afghanistan, we were supporting the rights of women uh, and young girls to be educated, supporting the rights of artists to practice their art, supporting the rights of different strains of Islam to have a lively theological debate, supporting the right of civil society to express a view. Uh, all those things we were on the side of, and we created the space to allow that to happen. Um, people should be proud of what was achieved there, uh, even if those achievements um, have not proven
0: enduring. I, I might put my position on Vietnam at some stage if I'm brave enough because um, uh, it runs contrary to the narrative and I've, I've lost friends on this topic. But look, the comparisons with Saigon 75, Kabul 2021, I, I just... Um, you, you just can't ignore them in my book um, and let me let me tell you a couple of anecdotes from my own uh, career as a foreign correspondent that might illustrate that uh, in 1995 20 years after the fall of Saigon as I, I still insist on on calling it um, I was in um, what is now Ho Chi Minh City um, uh, to follow up you know 20 years later in the stories and one one story that drew me I couldn't wouldn't let me go was the story of the uh, Australian consulate, I believe it was then, uh, because it was situated in the Caravelle Hotel there in the main uh, street, in the main square next to the town hall, just opposite the Rex Hotel, where the the daily briefings would occur for the American reporters, um, often known as the Five O'Clock Follies. But I I, I divert. I, I, I wanted to find out what had happened to the locally employed staff at that consulate when the Australians... Had to abandon it uh, just before the Americans left. Uh, very similar situation, as you can see, the parallels they, they are abundantly clear. There were stories at the time that the the then head of mission um, had f- fled in a plane with his family, his possessions, and his dog, and left behind um, the uh, you know the locally employed staff, who were of course in real serious danger from the incoming communist government but of course on investigating it so often I found that story to be completely untrue he he pleaded with Canberra with Gough Whitlam in fact who was then raised a de facto uh, foreign minister as well as being prime minister to allow the the, the uh, staff to travel with him and had permission refused now it's far too early to know details of the circumstances now but I think you and I have enough confidence in in um Peter Dutton and others have been involved in this. To know they would have done all they could, uh, but what can we now do to assist those people who who worked for us, not just in the in the diplomatic section, of course, but with our military and all sorts of other things we were doing there. Look, it's it's important. We do
1: all we can, and I'm I'm confident and pleased that of the resourcing we're putting into this and the risk that we're exposing our people to to allow this to happen. As you know, we've got. Defence Force personnel uh, back into the theatre. Um, we've got C-17s and C-130s. We've got people on the ground at Kabul Airport now that are processing these individuals. And I think it's, it's helped a little here by the fact that we did actually withdraw our diplomatic presence a few months ago now, as you'd recall. So we, we have had an orderly departure from Afghanistan and it's given us some time that we don't have to worry about our own people we can just worry about the people to whom we owe obligations. Uh, And since we withdrew um, uh, our diplomatic presence in April or early May, we've already, you know, we've moved um, a few hundred, at least, um, Afghans who were in need of protection and who worked for us to Australia uh, and helped get them out. So look, there is a lot more to do there though. And it's, um, and because we've had a presence there for two decades, you know, there's many, many Afghan's lives we've touched and who've been of help to us and their extended families who are all now uh, feeling some danger, Um, tracking them down, um, uh, enabling them to get out, making sure they've got documentation and the passage to Kabul airport. um, These are all pretty difficult tasks in the environment that we're in. But I think if as long as we I mean, the the best we can do, I think, is to um, maintain an air bridge to Kabul, which we have. Um, process these people as quickly as we can not be overly um, legalistic or bureaucratic in how we're assessing some of these claims i think it's better to err on the side of um, generosity here at least whilst we first get people out of afghanistan we can sort out some of the paperwork um, later because time is not on our side here Uh, and i think um, beyond that though and we've made a start here i think we need to have a very Generous and dedicated humanitarian intake to people who may not have worked for Australia but who rightly flee for their lives under a Taliban regime, fear for their lives under a Taliban regime. And especially here, um, I'm thinking of uh, women, uh, girls, artists, creatives, people who've been outspoken in civil society. All these people uh, will rightly be fearing for their lives under a Taliban regime, and we should be offering them protection. I mean, uh, I know the rest of the world has an obligation there too, but certainly, certainly
0: we do. But it's 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 a conundrum. It's a a very difficult one, isn't it? Because as we know, the uh, the notion that uh, amongst you know the vast majority of deserving cases who 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 not only need our compassion but we have a duty to to give it to them. Among them, it is highly likely that there may be some uh, less savory characters. Uh, I I put it as. As strongly as I'm prepared to under the circumstances, but look, we, we know that because it's happened before. So how do how do we in in how do we you know meet that trade off has to be made between the urgency of the situation and ensuring that the people who come to this country are the people we'd want to come to this country.
1: I think, and um, you know, without knowing all the ins and outs of the logistics, we can help people get out of the country and sort of rescue them without necessarily having to admit them to Australia straight away. And look, that's what that we're doing at the moment. The shuttle flights are going to, you know, the UAE and, and neighbouring countries where we've then got the space and the time to do the proper assessments and proper vetting and proper security checks that we need. So we can, I think, err on the side of generosity in getting people out of harm's way. Uh, and then we can make sure we apply the appropriate, you know, filters and screening and security vetting once they're in the UAE or even in, even in Pakistan, where we've got an official diplomatic presence and there's a government that works, we can do some of these background and identity checks. I mean, it is important we do that. I I accept that, and nothing would undermine Australian support for a generous refugee program more than finding out that we were importing unwittingly people who are Taliban or Taliban sympathisers. So we need to make sure we maintain the integrity of that program, but we also need to you know, get people out of harm's way, I think, as quickly as we can. And I, I'd expect and I hope that some of the UN agencies, particularly UNHCR, will, you know, establish a significant presence in the countries around Afghanistan to which people will be fleeing to make sure that they can start to process these people and, and assess their claims as refugees.
0: As somebody who was in the diplomatic service, I know you're probably, you've probably you probably got a, uh, an inbuilt fear of being holed up in the corner of a bar somewhere with an old foreign correspondent and being told the war stories. But look, like, I'm gonna share you one more of anecdote anyway, because I think this makes uh, a, a, a serious point. Uh, when I was in Hong Kong in the early 1990s, I was lucky enough to get to know a guy called Hugh Van S. Um, who, we used to be in the foreign correspondents' club there in Hong Kong every time I went in and always never short of a drink, people were always buying a drink. I discovered what his secret was uh, when I got to talk to him. He, he, Hugh Van Ness, who's uh, now sadly departed at the age of 67, but Hugh, Hugh was the man who took that very famous photograph, uh, which podcast listeners won't be able to see it. We're going to try and put it up for YouTube viewers, but you're, when I've described the photo, you'll know it in your head. It's, it's the one that shows uh, the real, the top of the U.S. Uh, embassy in Saigon in uh, April 75 if my memory serves me correct on the on the month 75, and, yeah. yeah and and, uh, and there's a ladder going up to the top of the roof and a helicopter picking people up and there's this long stream of people waiting to be evacuated uh and hugh dined out on that picture for the rest of his his all too short life mm, and, and good on him his colleagues used to say that it, it was a pure accident that he just happened to put his camera in the right direction at an era of course when you only had one shot or you had 36 shots on a roll it wasn't like today yes yes but it's it's, it's an iconic shot and, and in many ways has come to symbolize that war um or certainly the the way that war ended um now you flash forward to this week earlier this week and you see those images uh from the airport of Kabul with people clambering to get on the the C-130s I think and um and and clamming to get onto the air bridge to get into into jets and you go, this is the. this image is even in this day and age of, you know, when we've got a 30 second attention span. This is the image that's going to define this uh, campaign, despite all the good work that's gone into it. And what's more, there's a danger that it really will come to symbolize the declining strength of the US. Now, I think that's wildly overblown. I, I think anybody who thinks that is probably foolish. Uh, uh, but that's the danger, isn't it? So you spoke about Taiwan. How do we assist, shall we say, our, 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 our allies in the United States to uh, overcome this and move on?
1: It's a it's a very good question. And I have been thinking about this. I mean, my assessment would be that what we've seen in the last week in the imagery from Kabul is is very damaging, but it's not irretrievable or irrecoverable. and you know, Saigon and, I mean, let's remember there are two quite low points for um, American standing in the world in the 1970s. There was the fall of Saigon and then there was the overrunning of the American Embassy in Tehran in 1979, the Islamic Revolution, the toppling of the Shah, the long hostage crisis, which um, at the time, you know, was characterised in this sort of feeling of malaise in the United States. The United States had become... Uh, rudderless and lost the will to fight and was losing to the Soviets and, and everything else. And, of course, you know, a, a year later um, President Reagan was elected, it was mourning in America, um, and America was backing quite a big way through the 1980s. So none of this is sort of, um, this is, I think it's definitely a significant point. Um, whether it will be a turning point or not is something that is, is yet to be determined. And I think where we go from here is is quite important if you recall that you know the, the original premise of why biden wanted to get out of afghanistan is to focus uh on bigger strategic issues for the united states and most particularly the strategic competition with china um now i think it's important that he he does that uh and follows through on that so if they're drawing down in, in afghanistan or you know disinvesting from afghanistan they need to be investing or putting more chips on elsewhere, and especially in the Indo-Pacific, where you know, we all recognise is the main theatre of strategic competition in the decades ahead. So I think that the best thing the Americans do now, can do now to ameliorate some of the damage from Afghanistan is to make sure they shore up some of their key security and strategic partners in the region, uh, and that includes uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, Australia, um vietnam the philippines all of these are american um, partners or allies or or, um, cooperative countries in some degree or other and i think the united states needs to show through its deeds and words now that the withdrawal from afghanistan is not lessening their commitment to the region in fact it's freeing up resources to allow them uh, to do more so i think that's where this um you know this is where it will be determined whether events in Afghanistan are a tipping point or whether they're a setback in the context of a you know, broader revival of US power.
0: Well I suppose my confidence comes from the, the knowledge that in my old profession of journalism they will always overstate rather than understate the case so I think much of this one piece in Britain comparing this with Suez uh, in 1956 which um, seems to, me to be a, 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 a point stretched a little bit too far but look I mean, in terms of the US... I think it's the, US, the
1: same as that saying in politics, Nick, where it's never as bad as it seems. <laughs> never as exactly. good as it seems either, but it's also never as bad as it seems.
0: And let, let's let's draw on that point. So in, in terms of the vital uh, relationship between the US and Australia, all the signs were, at least the last time time I looked, that um, America was, was fulfilling its commitment um, to, you know, invest in... In the defence of this region, and, and was, was moving to further its its presence in the northern territory or the use of its bases in the northern territory, and 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 allow you know production here, domestic production of of crucial armaments. Um, do you see any sign of that weakening?
1: I must say, if we, if we put Afghanistan to one side, and I think it has been a real mistake. Uh, and a, a setback for the sort of U.S. standing in the world. If we put that to one side, though, I think generally speaking, the Biden administration has made quite a strong start uh, in foreign policy and broadly, including in Australia. We've we've seen him, you know, shore up and reinvest in traditional alliance relationships uh, with NATO, with partners in Europe, with Japan, with Korea, uh, with Australia. Um, Trump was, you know, people he his is a very mixed presidency and i I don't discount that he did some good things but he also profoundly unsettled alliance relationships with all his talk that he would you know withdraw troops from korea uh withdraw troops from um japan uh you know pull out of nato uh, all these sorts of things were profoundly unsettling and it provided um wind winds in the sails of american strategic rivals so biden has been very much alliance first and stressing that, he's also reinvesting in the multilateral architecture of the world. Now, uh, there's good reasons to be frustrated with the UN and the systems and the international system from time to time. But this is the system we created, the Western allies created at the end of the Second World War, uh, and you know if you abandon that system, there is no alternative. And I think Trump, you know, was at the point of abandoning it and. Well, lo and behold, who came in and started to colonise and exploit the system and use it for their own ends? Countries like China and and Russia. And if there's no alternative architecture or rules of the road or institutions you can invest in, you can't afford to abandon those. You need to to fight for control of the organisations. You need to fight to make sure they're heading in the right direction. And I think we've seen that again from Biden. He's reinvesting in some of the multilateral institutions that Trump had started to um, abandon. And the last thing I'd say is, Look, Trump had this strange, um, puzzling, almost fascination with some of the strongmen autocrats of the world, um, from Xi Jinping in China to Kim Jong-un in North Korea to uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in uh, in Turkey, um, who countries which aren't, um, Turkey's a NATO country, but none of them are really natural US allies. And again, that was profoundly on something, whereas Biden, I think, is taking a much more traditional view of her U.S. partners should be, and which countries he should deal with. So, I think, um, generally speaking, the Biden administration has made a good start on issues that matter to Australia, um, but undoubtedly they need to they need to put this Afghanistan setback behind them.
0: Yeah. Nevertheless, I mean, this is the great paradox of Trump, isn't it? Uh, in, under his administration, all the things you say are true about. You know and many much more we could say about about the uh, unconventional na- nature of Trump as president but uh, under his administration the U.S. made or was able to achieve I think two great foreign policy uh, uh one a breakthrough I described the other one is just a slow realization that have been uh, that have repositioned U.S. and, and indeed Western uh, strategic approach to China and Israel but starting with 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 China, of course, it was uh, Biden and uh, people like Mike Pence, uh, who, you know, basically were the ones who said, the emperor's got no clothes, as it were, that that we've been imagining that China was a, you know, economic development would lead to democratic development for years and years, despite everything that happened like Tiananmen Square. And it seems to me that the, the, the repositioning of the US towards China was long overdue. Australia, of course, as other Western allies have done, it has followed suit, I think, with admirable um, expression of unity. Um, Let's talk about that. What's the consequences of that and so forth?
1: I I think I'd agree. I mean, I think the the two big achievements of the Trump administration in foreign policy terms were um, the recalibration and recasting of the the relationship with China, The previous structure, if you like, had been what had been dubbed a G2, almost a kind of a condominium of leadership between the United States and and China, where China was seen as a a partner and a collaborator and a um, a contributor to the global order. That was Obama's dream and vision. But I think um, Trump rightly recognised that China was exploiting that for their own end and ultimately did not share the same goals or objectives as the United States, and he's He's called that out and repositioned the United States, I think quite quickly and effectively on that. And the other one, of course, that he touched on is, is the Abraham Accords or the normalization between Israel and countries like the United Arab Emirates, uh, Morocco, um, Bahrain, uh, Sudan, um, and potentially others uh, down the track, which is basically sort of recast the Middle East and provided a framework for these countries to cooperate against Iranian expansionism and Iranian nuclear ambitions and whatnot. Uh, and I think those will be, I mean, that's probably the two most important um, foreign policy achievements of the Trump administration. And uh, I think rightly the Biden administration has given, I mean, is, is preserving and adopting the doctrines and the policies on, on all of those issues. And I think that's, that's very wise because that's something that Trump did undoubtedly get right.
0: Yeah, we didn't get a chance to rehearse this discussion, but you you perfectly picked my next segue, which is to the Middle East and Israel. But before we do, let's just go back to China. Um, There seems to be two schools of thought developing. Um, One, which I think is becoming increasingly um, uh, unfeasible, is the idea that we've just got to pull our heads in that if we were nicer to China, it would be nicer to us. Uh, I think the, you know, it, this Cold War, if it is a Cold War, let's not get caught up in the in, in the name, but this, we didn't pick this fight with China. We wanted to trade with them. We wanted to send them our lobsters and our wine and everything else. We wanted to be good neighbors. It, it, when you get a country like China that, that is, shows every appearance of wanting to pick a fight, how should we respond?
1: I don't think we had, I mean, I think we've responded entirely appropriately, and I don't think we had any alternative if we wanted to remain a sovereign, independent country in charge of our own national decision-making. And I think this is what people who the sort of the apologist school fails to understand or misrepresents. Um, China was asking of us or expecting things of us that no self-respecting, sovereign, democratic nation accountable to its people could ever uh, freely give. I mean, I think China's vision of the relationship with, with Australia was a sort of a subservient one where um, Australia benefited economically, but China enjoyed a veto over areas of foreign policy or national decision-making. Because if you see where the rubber hit the road here uh, or or where this sort of conflict started, it was because of decisions that Australia took in our own national sovereign interest that China found objectionable, the exclusion of Huawei from the 5G network for national security reason, the introduction of Um, foreign interference transparency scheme to make sure that foreign actors were not corrupting our political system or our our public debate Um, our desire to see the origins of the coronavirus properly investigated so that we could prevent a future recurrence uh, of this the changes to our foreign investment screening laws to make sure that we um, were not allowing assets to be controlled offshore by state actors now all these things in, in my opinion are normal things that a, a sovereign country does to protect its own interests and certainly China does this all the time and many times more you know the ability to um, the idea that Australia could support um, political actors in China is laughable or that we could acquire significant um, You know, telecommunications or critical national infrastructure assets. Again, China would never permit that, and they're within their rights to do so. They're protecting their sovereign interests. But this is all we have been doing uh, in this, and the fact that China has found that objectionable um, shows you the sort of relationship that they expect to have. And you know, it. I think it goes back to the the history of how china has viewed the world and and the the way they like the world order structured if you look at their history it's a hierarchical structure it's with you know the middle kingdom and china at the apex of civilization but also diplomatic relationships with countries in 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 the satellites in varying degrees of subservience or obedience or fealty to that central power that's how China has traditionally been constructed. It's an empire traditionally. This is how it's behaved. This is its political structure. And this is its global, you know, geopolitical structure. And I think under Xi, we're seeing that preference for that particular world order uh, expressed again. And that's not the world order we, we live in. We live in the world order of the sovereign equality of states, the Westphalian system. Uh, and I think this is where this is where the, all the tension in the geopolitical system is coming from right now. It's because of a fundamental difference in how the world order should be structured. And people that don't recognise this, I think, are always going to misdiagnose the causes of these problems. They're not They're not just behavioural or incidental around a particular incident or, or trade dispute. They're much more um, fundamental and structural than
0: that. Well, that's right. And 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 the fact that um, we seem to forget for a while that China had remained a communist country under communist ideology, albeit of a a variety of their own uh, long after the Cold War had ended in Europe uh, mm. and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, a bit, look, I, I was an early adopter to the view that, that China's regime had not changed its spots, and I, I'm not going to... I promised that that would be the last foreign correspondent experience. It's a story I was going to tell you, but I, I had a few nasty experiences covering China, including a very unfortunate uh evening spent with the People's Liberation Army once, uh, uh, but I won't go into it except that I came away thinking, you know, this, this, this regime is not a nice one. And by contrast, um, on a handful of occasions when I had the opportunity to go to Taiwan, it was like, you know, feeling I'd been liberated. Uh, China, Taiwan was a, a lively, friendly place. People would stop and talk to you in the street, unlike China, you know, where, where the effect of a communist government is to really to destroy the social fabric. Um, you know, it was just chalk and cheese. But the thing is, you know, this goes to the point that we have to keep making. It's not the Chinese people because the people of, Hong, of Taiwan, of course, um, either came there from China or, or largely descended from people from the same stock. So it, it shows the value of democracy. It shows the value of freedom and why we're on that side. So here's the here's the big question, you know, in the event that mainland China attempted to take over Taiwan by force. Does Australia have an obligation to go to support them as a fellow member of the free world? Nick,
1: <laughs> I'm going to, um, you know, I'm, I'm, hypotheticals are always dangerous <laughs> in foreign policy. <laughs> John John Howe was, I think I, I always recall him using this phrase that he didn't deal in hypotheticals or some variant uh, that we won't engage in hypothetical questions. Uh, And they are particularly dangerous when it comes to these questions. I mean, all all I could say that I think there was it would depend very much on the circumstances at the time, like any um, international engagement would. I think obviously, um, you know, the the main security guarantor of Taiwan is the United States. Uh, um, That would be the principal country that you would expect to come to Taiwan's Aid if they were um, attacked by China. Australia has an alliance relationship with the United States. Um, you know the the, the the strict terms of the treaty are you know relatively wide in terms of interpretation. But it would be a judgment that the Australian government of the day would need to make about whether they would involve themselves or not in a in such a campaign. And it, it's you know it's it's far too I think complicated to give any sort of categorical answer. I think. We would certainly be concerned as a state of any attempts to alter the status quo between the mainland China and Taiwan, and that would include mainland aggression towards Taiwan. I think we would be opposed to any such attempts, but how we express that opposition and what form that takes would you know, have to depend very much on the context. And I'm, I'm a realist here as well, uh, Nick, I mean, I'm conscious that um Our ability to determine these sorts of outcomes acting alone is highly limited. Mm. Um, Mm. You know, we can defend ourselves and we can have a strategic impact beyond our shores, but we can't normally, Australia acting alone is not significant enough in terms of our military might or our force projection capabilities to sort of be a determinative factor in these deliberations. So, um, you know, you always need to keep that in mind that what we might want to see happen is not necessarily what we will be able to achieve you need to make sure that ends you know correlate with means
0: well my respect for your perspective on foreign policy goes back before you entered parliament uh, when we first met in fact when i was on a a visit to israel, israel. Uh, organized by the australian israel uh, jewish affairs committee and and you were um, your ambassador and i remember we had a, a fantastic briefing with you in which you you brought us up to date in a very Frank and, and an informed way on on the developments of that time, which of course are always constantly moving. Um, so I'm interested to know what you what you make of um, the current situation. Let's start with where you where you began on the the Abraham Accords um, and and those you know those bilateral relationships, essentially those bi- bilateral normalisation of relationships between um, Israel and and some um, strategic um, countries in the region that has really had the effect of of I think quite helpfully of of taking the Palestinian issue a little bit out of the spotlight at least in terms of settling and coming to peaceful resolutions it's no longer the the sole issue that is the obstacle in its way and better that way in my view because we can deal with that issue in its own right Mm -hmm. um would that be your view and and also can you bring me up to date I mean how how is that uh, initiative that great initiative, going right now.
1: Look, it's it's in very good health. I mean, there's a there's a new government in in Israel as as, as you know, a new prime minister Naftali Bennett, a new foreign minister uh, Yair Lapid. I I know them both well. I dealt with them often when I was in in Israel, and they're both very capable and competent and serious individuals. Uh, and I mean, even in the last month, I think uh, Lapid, the foreign minister, has been to the United Arab Emirates, he's opened the Israeli embassy there. Uh, a new uh, Emirati ambassador is in Israel now, I think last week or the week before he was in Morocco, first visit by an Israeli foreign minister in two decades to Morocco. Again, in the process of opening embassies and establishing diplomatic relations. Uh, so I think those, the sort of the openings of the Abraham Accords are, are going from strength to strength. And interestingly, you're seeing as well, which I think is, is quite interesting, the sort of people-to-people ties that ultimately are the foundation of any relationship beginning to blossom as well. You've got um, Israelis, tourists traveling to the UAE. You've got Israeli business people and tech entrepreneurs traveling to the UAE. Um, you'll soon start getting, I mean, it's just started as a triple now, but Israeli tourists going to Morocco. because a lot of Israeli Jews, uh, you know, Sephardic Jews or um Israeli Jews, Eastern Jews, trace their ancestry to Morocco. So a lot of Jews are interested in going back and looking at their ancestral homes and their villages. So we're seeing tourism happen there as well. And ultimately, you know, business and commerce and tourism and people-to-people ties are ultimately what underpins state-to-state relationships. And I think the fact that those are happening in, in these relationships shows you how positive um, how positive the, the prospects for them are. Both countries or all countries see them as in their bilateral interest to be pursuing this relationship, but they also see it as part of a regional reconfiguration, which uh, recognises, as you said, that the main fault line in the Middle East now is no longer the Arab-Israeli fault line, it's the, um, it's the Arab-Persian fault line. It's, it's Iran and its allies uh, and their expansionist aims in the regions against the status quo powers, which includes you know most of the Arab states, uh, the Gulf monarchies um, and Israel.
0: Yeah, I had a bit of a wry smile there, Dave, because I remember when when those first uh, agreements were announced to fly directly from Israel into the the Gulf states. I think UAE was the first off the blocks, may have been Emirates, but I could be wrong on that. I remember uh, thinking, well, this is going to be fantastic. I mean, that means now that Australian-Israeli relations have got to benefit because rather than that rather tortuous Route uh, we have to make now. Well, we can't even make it now, but we used to have to make. You could just go straight into Dubai, um, forty-five minute stopover, and then a short hop to uh, Tel Aviv. That, that's surely, but but like, let's 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 assume that that one day this COVID will pass. That's going to be a great advantage for us, isn't it? Particularly given the strength of our our Jewish business community here.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that we will now be able to fly directly to Israel from yeah, um, Dubai or Abu Dhabi uh, is going to be a huge makes it a, so much easier to get to Israel, makes it so much easier for Israelis to get to Australia uh, and will just increase the connectivity between our nations. Because as you said that the previous way, Israel didn't enjoy overflight rights over any states to its east. So it had to the previous air routes were either north through Turkey and Central Asia and then down through China or south sort of through the Suez Canal under the Arabian Peninsula, in that way, and both of them added about four or five hours to um, the flying time between uh, Israel and Australia. And so this will this will this will be a boon to our own relationship, undoubtedly. Uh,
0: I don't want to dismiss the seriousness of the the recent conflict uh, between the people of Gaza and and Israel by any any means. Uh, quite the opposite. But I, I do want to make two points here, Dave, and test them with you because I'm sure. As somebody who, who knows Israel very well, served as our ambassador, you must get as frustrated as I do. People are so quick to come to judgment on that particular conflict um, with little knowledge of any of, of the actual facts, which are complicated, right? The history is absolutely is complicated. But, you know, as, as President Macron said uh, of France recently, and I thought it was a wonderful speech, you can criticize our history, but first you have to learn it. Uh, <laughs> and i feel that's so true of the middle east you know you can come to a view but yes. let's learn the history but anyway let's go back to this so it seemed to me what two things one that it was it was the most predictable conflict you could imagine choreographed as it often appears to be uh by the palestinian leadership not the people uh for their own advantage and done possibly to you know to get to get themselves back in the deal after the abraham accords I don't, your thoughts on that might be interesting, but but the, the main point I drew from it was just how incredibly one-sided media coverage of that has now become. It was always that way, but it seems to me that, that the, the, the the first and only assumption that you're allowed to make is that everything is the Palestinian um, publicity machine, and it's very, as you know, very, very well advanced uh, and and complex the way that they they manage media um, everything they say is correct everything you hear out of television must be lies get get your views on both of those assessments so it's not too big a double question no no of course
1: look I I think you're absolutely right people um, people it's strange this is on nearly other any other international issues people will often. Recognize that there's a, a a lot that they might not know, and they'll be slow to rush to judgment. And they recognize that most international conflicts are complicated and have deep histories and long standing grievances and whatnot. Uh, and, um, you know, people will often not profess a clear view. But the Israeli Palestinian conflict, um, for some reason, you know, people have a high degree of certainty about who's right and who's wrong. Uh, and they seem to be very quick to attribute. You know motives to either side and blame one side and, and not the other, and it, it 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 doesn't make any sense in this in this conflict to my mind. I mean, the most recent conflict and people need to understand this. It's very difficult to explain it sometimes, but the most recent conflict started because Hamas was firing rockets at civilian populations in Israel. Um, That's the reason the conflict uh, of early this year started. It's also the reason that the conflict in 2014 started. Mm. It's also the reason the conflict in 2012 started. And it's also the reason the conflict in 2009 started. It started because of Hamas aggression against Israel. Israel is not occupying Gaza. Israel is not in Gaza. There are no Israelis living in Gaza. There is no IDF presence in Gaza. The Gazans are left to govern themselves. Um, Hamas does a bad job of governing Gaza but that's really between them and the Palestinian people. Uh, And so the idea that Israel is somehow provoking these conflicts is is wrong. All Israel does in these conflicts is act in self-defense. And as soon as Hamas stops firing the rockets, that's when the conflict stops. Uh, It's pretty easy to start the conflict and it's pretty easy to stop it as well. But people often confuse the, the asymmetry of weaponry, Um, And the asymmetry of damage for, you know, an attribution of blame. It's undoubtedly true that Israel has a more sophisticated military than Hamas. It's also unfortunately true that when there is a conflict between Israel and Gaza, more civilians die on the Gaza side than the Israeli side. And that's for a range of reasons, because Hamas embeds military infrastructure in and command posts in um, and rocket launching sites in civilian buildings, in apartment buildings, in schools and hospitals and things like that. And it's also product of the fact that Israel has invested a lot in protecting its civilian population through things like the Iron Dome defence shield, through things like mm. bomb shelters mm. in apartment buildings, all those sorts of things. So, um, But, you know, at, uh, the fact that there is not an equal number of casualties on both sides does not mean that, um, you know, one side is to blame and the other side is is blameless um completely not the case and I think this is what people you know should understand the other thing I think that's worth representing here worth portraying is people often think that the Palestinians are a single political entity well they're not there's Hamas that rules in Gaza which is the one that's always fighting with Israel and provoking wars and then there's the Palestinian Authority or Fatah which is based in the West Bank um which cooperates with Israel on security matters they don't have a Beautiful relationship, but they cooperate on borders, they cooperate on intelligence matters, they have a shared interest in making sure Islamic extremist groups like Hamas do not take foothold in the West Bank, um, they have an interest in stopping terrorist attacks, all these sorts of things. So, one part of the Palestinian population wants to live alongside Israel, they want an independent state, and I think that's a um, completely legitimate expectation and aspiration. But they're interested in getting it through negotiation and diplomatic means. The other part, which is ruled by Hamas in Gaza, is not interested in coexistence with Israel or the Jewish people. It, its its own mandate wants to wipe Israel from the map and, and reclaim all the land west of the Jordan River for a Palestinian state. And I think in that situation, I mean, Israel doesn't have a lot of, a, a lot of good options. There's, 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 there's not much it can do when an entity that's committed to your own destruction um, commences wars against you. All you can really do is defend your own population and try and prevent it from happening again. And that's what Israel uh, did do in this last conflict.
0: Yeah, I mean, anybody who thinks our parliament is chaotic um, should have a look, of course, at Israel's. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's very hard in their system of government to get a you know a strong uh, majority either way. So it's always a coalition of some sorts and it's always lively. But here's the point about it is that it is a very, very uh, active democracy and a very free country. And, and the, the things, both both my visits there, I've come back uh, absolutely in no doubt where we stand as a nation and which which side we uh, should support if you see this as a battle between freedom and tyranny as it certainly looks like at the moment. So uh, it must disappoint you as it, it disappoints and, and scares me a bit, what's happening in our to our Labour Party, which is really split on this question. I mean, there was very, very strong supporters of Israel in Labour, as you know, uh, particularly in Melbourne, and um, Bill Shorten, for instance, um, Julia Gillard, you know, uh, well, I could go on, but um, less so in, in New South Wales. And it seems to me that the New South Wales side that want us to do everything to recognize and support the Palestinian nation, as they call it, um, is the right way to go. How do you read that what's happening in the in the Labor side? And how, how serious should we take this? Look, I think um,
1: I'd make two points. One is it's, it has been a, a strength of Australian foreign policy that support for Israel has been bipartisan. And I uh, long may that continue. I think that that is very important. We, we're seeing Israel just gradually become a partisan issue in the United States, uh, and I think that's uh, that's very un, unhealthy for any number, for the Jewish community there, for the relations between the two states and for the, the ability of, of Israel to navigate freely and safely in the world. So I hope that doesn't happen here in, in Australia. But I think what we're seeing um, in parts of the Labor Party reflects their kind of – progressive campus based base in amongst parts of the, the labor party where um look you see it on universities and amongst uh, academics and other um parts of what's traditionally kind of labor establishment territory um where it's opinion is is generally hostile to israel and oftentimes um, borderline anti-semitic anti-semitic as well uh, and i think um where those institutions have a bigger say over labor policy and it's in some states and some branches and some office holders um, we're seeing you know more and more of a tilt towards the Palestinian narrative or the Palestinian uh, worldview it's not uniform at all and I, I look I would say that amongst you know the, the current leadership of the labor party um, you know I think Anthony Albanese has said the right things on this issue I think Penny Wong has said the right things on this issue I know penny traveled to israel has been there a number of Mm. times Mm. and i think that's important because it's the people you're most most worried about are those who reach these judgments without having gone to see Mm. the situation and the facts for themselves look and people can have a different view on this conflict i respect that and i appreciate that that's our, our political system but people as you said with your macron quote um you know people need to inform themselves of the facts before reaching a view and some of the most activist voices um within the Australian political debate, including within the Labor Party on this, have not bothered to inform themselves of all the complexities of this conflict.
0: Yeah, um, uh, just just while we're on the subject, that Macron speech, I was so impressed with it. We did a very unusual thing, and we've, we, uh, we went to the trouble of getting it subtitled in English, and we put it up on the Menzies Research Centre YouTube channel, so you can catch it there. Uh, it's well worth watching, by the way. Um, it's a very interesting, Speech in a lot of ways, but look back. Look, you, you've you've touched on it. We have to go there. Uh, I hate talking about this, but but the reality is we have to. The phenomena of anti-Semitism. Uh, how much is there the 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 the, the, the swiftness to side with uh, the Palestinian cause and uh, and and against Israel an anti-Semitic issue? Well. You might want to visit that, or you might not. But it's unmistakable that anti-Semitism is is rising in a lot of places that are quite unexpected in Britain, mm. in the Labour Party, there, in the in the British intelligentsia. Melanie Phillips, uh, you know, the British writer, British columnist, writes very, very persuasively about this as being part of a, you know, just a, a, a resurgence of a trend that's always been there in the European psyche. Um, but it's it's real, right? And and even more recently, here we saw some anti-Semitic comments made by um, somebody who was prepared to challenge uh, our treasurer in the suit of Kuyong at the last election. Uh, yes. What's your take on it? I, I guess is where I'm coming I, to, you, Dave.
1: Yeah, no, I th- I think it is um, it is a, a growing concern and a growing problem. I think generally speaking, in Australia. It's much less of a problem than in other Western countries, but that's not to be complacent about it. Here, and I don't think we can we can afford to be The interesting thing, or the the unique thing about sort of the modern variant of anti-Semitism, is it's it was traditionally a sort of the property of a kind of a, a nationalist, eth- ethno-nationalist kind of far-right movement. Um, traditionally, increasingly these days, anti-Semitism is the property of the kind of progressive left, uh, and that's where you see it. The the growth and that's why you see it more and more on university campuses and amongst um, you know commentators and academics and things like that, um, and I think that's that's the bigger concern now. You know, there's always it's always important to draw a distinction between legitimate criticism of of Israel and Israel's government. Israel should be just as subject to criticism in their government as as any other country or any other government. But where it veers into anti-Semitism, of course, is the sort of delegitimization of um, the right of the Jewish people to have their own nation state, the right of Israel uh, to exist, um, trafficking in stereotypes about you know Jewish power and influence uh, around the world um, uh, and and kind of uh, putting forward you know damaging stereotypes about the level of power and influence uh, they have around the world. Uh, this is where I think you know this is where legitimate criticism of Israel crosses into. Um, anti-Semitism, propagating stereotypes, delegitimizing Israel um, or holding the entire Jewish people accountable for the actions of the State of Israel. And I think that's what we need to watch very carefully here. Uh, I noticed in the last conflict um, from, oh, look, I've got a sizable Jewish community in my electorate uh, and a number of the younger um, Jewish adults in my electorate who are students um, suddenly found that, the hostility being directed towards them on university campuses, um, on, about Israel's conduct, they found very unsettling. And, and they hadn't sought to engage in this debate. They hadn't gone out there and I said, "Israel is right and Hamas is wrong." They're just getting about their lives and going to, and doing their study groups. But they suddenly became the focal point for a lot of very unwelcome um, attention, and I think that is really concerning because this sort of, uh, you know, corrodes the the base of our society and our social cohesion as a society and our ability to get along. If people are being made to, being singled out and victimised and, and, and held to a different standard to, to other individuals because of their, in this case, because of their religion, I think that's that's a worrying sign and I, it does concern me in Australia that, that this sort of general trend is on the rise.
0: Yeah, and and maybe we can just spend a little bit of time before we close in just, just squashing some of those stereotypes perhaps by creating a new stereotype of the true the true portrait of the jewish uh, citizen in australia first of all they're not uh, i think often exaggerated their numbers are often exaggerated it's a fairly small group i think even within your electorate while well, it's in the low single digits um as a percentage um, I you can see
1: about eight, eight or ten percent at most i think
0: yeah yeah well you compare that with some of the seats out in western sydney where you've got 20 percent plus of muslims uh, and overall of course much much larger numbers they are becoming a small and increasingly smaller in a percentage terms group but they're an exceptionally civic-minded uh people in my experience and an exceptionally great contributors to australian society both in terms of philanthropy in terms of enterprise in terms of their determination to be good citizens mm. and almost, you know i don't want to single them out above some some you know the many other fantastic um groups that have come to this country, but, but, you know, that strikes you about them. We need to stand by them and support them and and recognize the great contribution they've made to our culture and the economy, I think more openly than we do.
1: I think that's true. I mean, look, Jewish Australians arrived in Australia on the, on the first fleet from from London. They've been here since the beginnings of, of settlement of Australia. And they have made an immense contribution. I mean, our finest generals, General Sir John Monash, some of our biggest philanthropists, Mm. some of our most successful uh, business figures like, uh, you know, Frank Lowy amongst others, Um, some of our most brilliant legal minds, uh, some of our best artists and most uh, creative talents. Uh, You know, they're all um, Jewish Australians and they're they're proudly Australian. There's no doubt about that nationality or loyalty to Australia, but they're also um, they're also proudly Jewish and they practice their faith and their religion and their traditions and observe uh, all of those things. And that's, I mean, this is what makes Australia great, of course, mm-hmm. is we don't demand only a single form of identity and you don't have to be an Australian at the exclusion of being something else. We, You can be Jewish Australian, you can be Indian Australian, you can be Muslim Australian, uh, you know, you can be any number of things. We accept that as, as an identity because we, we don't, we're not narrow in how we define our nationalism. We just um, expect adherence to certain civic norms and the upholding of, you know, democracy, the rule of law, equal rights, those sorts of things is what defines being an Australian. And I think Jewish Australians have made an immense contribution to that. And and if we start to sort of, um, I mean, why I worry about antisemitism is, yes, it's a concern to the Jewish community, but it should also be a concern to every Australian, because this is how you sort of unravel a national identity and, and, and set parts of society against one another um, and make judgments about the loyalty or otherwise of different groups to Australia. And pretty soon, you know, you're at a, you're, you've you got quite a divided and fractious um, and non-harmonious society that's always fighting with another group about it, about who is the more Australian or who is the more patriotic or who is the more deserving of being. And that's, the, that's a recipe for national ruin and disaster.
0: Yeah, and we shouldn't forget our esteemed treasurer, of course, Josh Frydenberg, in that list of luminaries. But I've got one more very short question for you. He'll be pleased to
1: mention that, Nick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed he will. But uh, just before I do, I can't resist the segue you've just given me to plug uh, an MRC book, which is about to come out, God and Menzies by David First Roberts, which is a very important book, firstly because it draws this uh, direct connection between the Judeo-Christian tradition and the principles that underpin the Liberal Party uh, through the person of Robert Menzies, who is a man who understood faith uh, in a very profound way and and much of that thinking became incorporated into the Liberal Party. We'll be saying a lot more about that later. I just think this is such an important book, particularly at this time. God and Menzies, David First Moritz You can pre-order it now on our website. I'll put a link up to that in a minute. Um, but the final question, David, is... Um, I couldn't help thinking when um, you know the position of Secretary of Foreign Affairs uh, was advertised recently, with the uh, retirement of from that position of Francis Adams, that uh, many of your colleagues I know have said to me that you would have been an admirable candidate for that position. You 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 had a very um, uh, a very uh, good career in foreign affairs. The, the the post of ambassador to Israel, of course, is is no small deal. But you went another course, um, an exciting one in some ways. But, you know, I'll look at you guys in Parliament House and think, who'd want that job? Any regrets?
1: No, no, no regrets. Although that's not to say I don't miss parts of my old my old life, the the job security and the certainty (laughs) uh, and um, other elements of it. But no, no regrets. I mean, I think, you know, I've I've always recognised from my time in government, on the public service side and elsewhere, that you know, rightly in Australia, the big decisions in our national public life are taken by elected representatives, and that's how it should be. So, um, being a bureaucrat and a senior bureaucrat, you can you can achieve great things. You can make a great contribution to national affairs, but ultimately, the direction of national affairs is set by the parliament, the elected representatives, and and the government. And I think that's where I've always been. You know, that's that's what drew me to it. Um, yes, there are sort of um, perils and pitfalls that come with the profession uh, of politics. It's certainly a much tougher profession to be honest, and a tougher career than being a, uh, a diplomat. Um, but in the the upside is it's it's more satisfying, uh, and you get to have a bigger say and a bigger voice on national affairs. So, um, no no regrets. Um, uh, it was a you know a bit of a sliding doors moment for me deciding to go into politics rather than stay in diplomacy. But I'm I'm glad that I've done it,
0: David. My my most recent interview with Greg Sheridan, which people can see on the website or can um, listen to the podcast. Um, we ended up spending the whole time talking about religion because religion, that's the his, sub-
1: his new book. Yeah,
0: yeah, uh, which was fantastic. It was it was a really good conversation. If you haven't caught up on it. Um, i'd really recommend it but um, and the book indeed um but but the point is of course it means i uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to greg uh, and put jory's expertise on foreign affairs and i suspect the way he's writing at the moment about brilliant stuff on the question of freedom of religion and related topics we will get less chance to do so so i'm absolutely delighted to have you've been able to come on and have this discussion for us and bring the same insights that Greg does into foreign affairs and great balance and objectivity. Dave, thank you for joining us on Water Cooler. Thank you so much for having me, Nick.
1: It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation.
0: been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the menzies research center we'd like to bring you many more of course and you can help us by subscribing from just ten dollars a month go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe i'm nick cater and thank you for listening